Take your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 3, if you would. Mark chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles in a chair in front of you, it's page 838. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. Danny is not here today. He's actually in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, because where else would you want to be in January? Right? And uh, he is preaching there. He, he actually has been talking to a pastor out there for about five years about coming out and just um, teaching and preaching for some pastors out there who uh, serve in the Forsaken Land up north, Canada South, uh, whatever you want to call that place. But um, he got to teach and preach to about 20 pastors on Wednesday and Thursday, or Thursday and Friday. And then uh, their church had a little Bible conference on Saturday and Sunday. And so I know that God's using him. And, and in some way, right, by extension, he's using our church out there. That's cool. Um, and we're thankful for that opportunity. Uh, Danny would love to be with us today. He, he takes his opportunities and responsibility here very seriously. But as God opens doors, we try to walk through them wisely. And we're thankful um, for that. And I do really enjoy the privilege to open God's word and preach it um, when those times come. I have a confession to make to you. This is how I felt this week. You ever felt this way? Okay, by a show of hands, recently, so it doesn't have to be this week, but recently, how many of you have felt this way? Oh, good, I'm in good company. <laughs> Not the only one who feels this way. I like this graphic because it, you, there's probably a bunch of you reading different parts of it and, and resonating with those different things. You're like, the future I'm not worried about. Bills, rent, <laughs> right? And so with preaching and teaching this week um, and all the other responsibilities in life and um, getting rolling with our community group, which was great on Thursday night, and um, it's also the end of the month, which if you kind of oversee finances, means you need to be getting giving receipts out, and um, we're making some other changes at the first of the year, and I was like, ah! You ever feel that way? I mean, you don't do that, right? You're not just sitting in your chair at work, or maybe some, yeah, somebody just went, I do. Um, but you feel that way, don't you? I get to work with Kristen on Fridays, and uh, she texted me at 8.30, 8.40 on Friday, something like that, because I wasn't at work yet. And she's like, are you coming in? And I was like, yes. I just hit the wall, was up early thinking, then overslept, then been there? It was an interesting thought as I read the text this, that we're going to look at this morning that Jesus has been there. Stop and think about that for a sec. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. Jesus chose to be one person in one place with one body, with one allowance of energy, needing to eat and sleep and do all the things that you and I need to do. And yet Jesus was faced at times with overwhelming and pressure-filled situations. In fact, I wonder if it's not part of the reason that his earthly ministry was only three years long. Because day in and day out, he was under the gun. 
And I think if we're going to take that verse in Hebrew seriously about Jesus being tempted in all points like as we are, we can assume that Jesus was tempted to worry. And he was tempted to be irritable. And he was tempted to lash out in anger. And he was really fully human. Now, I don't know in my finite human mind how to put that fully God, fully man relationship all together. But I do know that's exactly what he experienced. Humanity and deity together. So would you read along with me in Mark 3 and imagine it through humanity? Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew. Why do you withdraw? To get away. Right, see, that's pretty straightforward. What happened? Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed. How'd that withdrawal go? Where did the crowd come from? From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon, from everywhere they were coming. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. I bet they did. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. You ever been in a crushing crowd? Thankfully, I've never been in a crushing crowd where the crowd actually wanted me. <laughs> I've just been part of the crowd. <laughs> Believe it or not, I don't have that celebrity status where, yeah, Jesus did. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Some of you who cherish your personal space are really getting tense right now. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Lord, we thank you for your word. And, and God, I'm just thankful this week that your word is alive and active. And even though I've read Mark many times it comes to me in new light and new color and new intensity and new help even as I read and study. And so I, I know that that's the experience of your people here gathered today. And we just marvel at the power of your word and at the wisdom and grace of your son. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, may a bit... <laughs> Uh, a morsel of his wisdom and his grace and his truth fall into our lives today. May your spirit do all your holy work in us as we learn of him and we learn him today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're actually gonna finish the chapter, believe it or not, today, and I promise not to keep you forever. But... What we see in this text is Jesus under extreme pressure. And we see it actually in a couple ways, right? We're going to start with this story of the overwhelming crowd, but then we're going to see Jesus having to deal with some very personal and painful and piercing accusations, the stuff that really hurts. 
And yet, as we watch him, we ought to marvel at what he does and to some degree what he doesn't do. Because we can all relate to how we handle pressure, right? Probably in two words, not well. Right? Some of us try to withdraw and there's great problems, so we just really withdraw. Like, we're out of here. We, we cave. We crack. We crumble. Jesus does none of those things. And, and as we marvel at him, it also instructs us. Because in this pursuit together to grow and become like Jesus, there's a lot of wisdom here. And so I hope that we do both those things today. The first pressure that Jesus faces is the pressure of overwhelming crowds. And again, I think probably our, um, our storybook Bibles have not served us well on this one. Right? Because um, there's nothing really to sit on up here. Uh, Jesus is like pictured in our minds sitting on a nice hill, talking to people, teaching them. They've formed a nice single file line are coming one by one for him to heal them and, and cast out demons. And yet this story paints nothing like that, does it? I mean, there's so many people here and, and we're not talking hundreds and we're probably not talking thousands. We're probably talking tens of thousands. And the reason that we know that is because we know from other stories of Jesus feeding people that we're talking like four or 5,000 men plus women and children. So if you just go for every guy, two more, you get to like 15,000 people. And, the, and, the, and this story tells us that they were coming from everywhere. I mean, look at the text. It says they came from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And I know those names don't mean much to you, but can I just say what it's saying is they came from his neighborhood and they came from 50 miles away and 70 miles away and from neighboring countries. And this shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because if you heard that in Colorado or Arizona, there was somebody who was healing people and who was casting out demons that had possessed. Like if you heard that and you knew somebody who was really sick or you knew someone who was really under the power of evil, you would get in your car and you would go, wouldn't you? And you would be like these crowds pressing to get to Jesus. And so there's hysteria or mania that follows Jesus. In July of 2018, Build-A-Bear decided they were going to do a promotion. Do you hear about this? Pay your age. So kids could come to Build-A-Bear. Normally bears are like 20 bucks, 25 bucks, 15 bucks. You know, they're in that range. And you could bring your two-year-old and get a bear for $2. What happens when you tell parents that? They had to close Build-A-Bear stores in the middle of the day. I mean, you could get online today and you could see a Chicago news report of the chaos that ensued. And this has always cracked me up just because I'm so analytical, right? That um, people would stand in line for four hours to get a $2 bear. What is your time worth? I mean, that is no longer a $2 bear. And based upon what you bought in the mall so your kid would survive that experience, oh, and the child had to be there. So much better. 
And, and, and so they had these massive crowds. They didn't know what to do with them, and there were lines. And like we've experienced this, but think about what Jesus is in the middle of. Turn over to Luke chapter 8. I want to show you this again. It's on page 866 if you want, because there's actually something in the story in Luke 8 that popped out to me that I just want to share with you. <clears throat> Here's another story of Jesus healing, and, and notice the similar language. Luke 8's a long chapter, but we're going to start in verse the middle of verse 42. Page 866, Luke 8, 42. As Jesus went the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She was bleeding. She couldn't stop it. And though she had spent all her living at physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. No wonder people were trying to touch Jesus. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, so including the woman, trying to remain incognito. Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. Look at this last phrase. For I perceive that power has gone out of me. And let's go back to Jesus' full deity and full humanity and understand, every time Jesus healed someone, it took his strength in some way. Now think about that with thousands of people. Jesus is not standing on top of some kind of rock going, you, 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 you. He's exerting himself with the crowds and the pressure. And think about what that would do to you. How could Jesus have responded? Well, he could have sent the crowds away. He could have become angry. He could have been irritable. He could have been worried. And I'm just... I'm, I've marveled this week that Jesus willingly became a man and accepted those limitations and challenges. But look at the story that follows. How does Jesus respond? Let's go back to Mark 3 if you're still in Luke 8. There's no accident here in the way that this story flows. Here's Jesus with lots of people and lots of problems and lots of pressure. Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain. Maybe the people didn't want to hike. The hills scared him away. I don't know. And he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. There's some mild guys. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
What does Jesus do? How does he respond to the overwhelming crowds? Jesus humbly gets help. Think about that. He says, I'm going to choose 12 of you to follow me. Now, now this is both a short-term and a long-term plan, isn't it? I mean, we tend to think about the long term of how Jesus would train these guys and how they would be with him and then ultimately he would use them to spread the gospel through the whole world. But this is a short-term plan too because there are overwhelming needs. Did you notice what he did with the 12? Three things. Verse 14 and 15. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they, one might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. You know what he did? He said, you 12 are going to have a special place in my work. I want you to be with me. I want you to be trained. (laughs) I want you to see how I serve. I want you to see what I do. I want you to get on the inside and let me um, uh, train you. But then he did what? He gave them responsibility. He's going to send them out to preach and teach. And he gave them authority. Those are the three pieces of any good delegation, by the way. Training, responsibility, and authority. Jesus gave this responsibility to a degree away. But think about the disciples. They weren't going to do things exactly like Jesus did. They weren't deity. They weren't God. So they were going to fail. We read those stories. They were going to make mistakes. But Jesus enabled them intentionally. And we know from other places in the gospel accounts that he sent them out. He even sent out in one of the groups of two, Judas Iscariot as his representative. Think about that. Can I propose to you that what we see in this moment is beautiful humility? Even though Jesus is the center of attention, and even though it is all about him, he's delegating and and sending messengers and preparing disciples And do you know he's doing the same thing today? Do you ever wonder if you know Jesus as your Savior that he picked you? I mean, with all your flaws, and and, and when you talk about him, sometimes you just get it totally, it's a mess. But do you know he's delegated to you? Just like he did to these 12. If you want to, on your own time, I'd encourage you to read the story in Exodus 18 where Moses, under great pressure and having to sit from morning till evening to judge the people of Israel, gets help. Where, where in Acts, or read Acts chapter 6 where these same men preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel, there's a problem among the church and they go, we need help. We know that Paul, when he traveled, always traveled with companions and sometimes quite a few. So I have a really simple question for all of us this morning. Where do you need help? 
Or do you have it more together than Jesus? Are you more self-sufficient? Because what keeps us from getting help? There's one word. Pride. We've decided we can do it on our own. I have a two-year-old. He's great for illustrations. I mean, great. So thankful for him for lots of reasons, but that's one. He went through an independent stage. I mean, this is probably the first of many independent stages or independent life, right, that children go through. But he went through an independent stage maybe six months ago. Once he started to be able to, like, do some things himself, he decided that he could do everything himself. Anybody have children? Seen this happen? And his catchphrase, his one-liner was, I do it myself. I climb into my booster seat myself. I climb into the car myself. I feed myself. Now, some of that's good, but there are limits, aren't there? It was so funny. Colleen was giving him a bath last night, and I popped in, and I'm, I'm finishing up preparing the sermon. I popped in, and I'm, I'm helping him, and he's, um, he likes to make soup. That's his thing. He puts uh, toys in things and cars in things, and he calls it soup. So he gets a kitchen bowl of some sort, or he uses like a big cup, and he just, like in the bath, he puts his bath toys all in something, and he calls it soup, and then he adds water to it selectively, and all the ingredients, he likes that word. He's making soup. <laughs> and I walked in, I was checking out how he's doing, and he, and, and maybe, I've been there like two minutes, he goes, I don't need any help. <laughs> yes, you do. And as much as we laugh at small children, don't we sometimes do that in our own lives? I do it myself. I don't need help. God didn't design us to live alone. He actually limited us and designed us to need him and to need each other. I saw this meme this week and that cracked me up. Some of you can relate to that. I need some help around here. Also me. No, not like that. Here, I'll do it. God hasn't designed you to live alone. He hasn't designed you to do it all yourself. And if you are doing that, and if you are unwilling to get help, and if you can relate to me, because I can totally, I get that. Just ask Christy and Brittany. They're helping me with church books. Can I tell you, we are, we are not greater than Jesus. And his humility is an example to us. Jesus faced overwhelming crowds, but the second thing he faced was piercing accusations. Look at verse 20. Then he went home. We assume this is Jesus' physical home with Mary and Joseph. We know that Jesus didn't actually have an earthly home. He wasn't a home investor. He wasn't building equity. He didn't have that sort of place, but he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. That's how pressing the crowds are. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Here's the first accusation. Jesus, you are crazy. 
Now, who made the accusation? His family. Isn't it true that the accusations that hurt the most come from the people we love the most? I mean, listen, if someone you don't know, someone across the country reads some comment you made on Facebook and says you're crazy, you're like, whatever. But if your family looks at you and says something, anything like that, with sincerity, that hurts, doesn't it? Sometimes in marriage, in times of deep frustration, husbands and wives will say things to each other that hurt deep, won't they? You know, I don't know that you even love me. I don't respect you at all. You don't even care about this family, do you? What's that feel like? I mean, that gets down deep, doesn't it? Unless we forget, these are people that Jesus had spent 30 years with in perfect living. And it's interesting how the tone of questions changes here. Look back in chapter 2, or accusations. Look back in chapter 2, verse 6. These are some of the questions we covered over the past few weeks. But here are the scribes, the religious leaders of their day, verse 6, as Jesus is forgiving sins and healing people. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, that's a strong charge, but they didn't say it to him. It was inside. They were looking at each other, thinking, what is he doing? Look at verse 16. Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they say, they, when they saw he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to who? To his disciples. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this is certainly an accusation, but it's more in the form of curiosity and I don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. Look at verse 18. The people came to him and said, why do John's disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Again, this is, this is a confused, we don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, right? Look at chapter 2, verse 24. One more question. And it's, it's a little more intense, but still. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Do you see how indirect and to some degree impersonal all these accusations are? But this one and the next one are different. They are direct and they are personal and they're connected to Jesus' love. So the accusation is, Jesus, you are crazy Can you listen to what God's word says about the character of God? Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Do you know how much smarter God is than you? Do you know how much wiser? 
I wouldn't recommend the Message Bible as your primary Bible study Bible, okay? Hear that loud and clear. But can I read to you Romans eleven thirty three 33 to 36? Have you ever, this is after seeing the saving work of God and his plan through um, his people, the Jews, and in the whole world, verse 33. Have you ever come on anything quite like this extravagant generosity of God, this deep, deep wisdom? It is way over our heads. We'll never figure it out. Is there anyone around who can explain God, anyone smart enough to tell him what to do? Anyone who has done for him such a huge favor that God has to ask his advice. Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. If you're struggling to trust God in his wisdom, can I recommend a book to you? I'm going to recommend the Bible entirely. (laughs) But can I recommend a book by Jerry Bridges called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts? Bridges says this in his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. In the same book, Bridges tells a story from a sermon by Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon once said, so they're going connecting a bunch of dots here, Napoleon, so we're, okay, we're all the way to Napoleon, just hang there. Napoleon once heard it said that man proposes and God disposes. That's a biblical thought. We come up with plans, but God is the one who sees whether things are going to happen or not. Ah, said Napoleon, but I propose and dispose too. How do you think he proposed and disposed, Spurgeon says? He proposed to go and take Russia. He proposed to make all Europe his. He proposed to destroy that power, and how did he come back again? How had he disposed it? He came back solitary and alone. His mighty army perished and wasted, having well nigh eaten and devoured one another through hunger. Man proposes, and God disposes. God is all wise, and we need to sink our hearts into that truth. The pastor that I worked with in Indiana used to say it very simply, and I loved how he said it, God's ways are best and right. They cannot be improved upon. So he's accused of being crazy, but there's another accusation. Look at verse 22. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem, and they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. It's another name for Satan. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. What is this accusation? We know what you're doing, Jesus. You're demon-possessed. Can you sense the difference in tone from why do you do what's not lawful on the Sabbath to you are possessed by a demon? Look at Jesus' response. How can Satan, he says, verse 23, cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus starts with a convincing argument. Your accusation makes no sense. 
why would I, being demon-possessed, cast out demons? But what's actually happened is I have bound Satan, and I'm doing uh, what I'm doing. Right? So he starts with a convincing argument, but he goes on from there. Look at verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, I know some of you are really hoping that I'll take the next 10 minutes to talk about the unpardonable sin. No such luck. But can I tell you what Jesus says? That is evil, it is unforgivable, and it is eternal. Jesus has never spoken like this to this point. Because in the face of this accusation, the gloves come off. And it shouldn't surprise us. Have you ever had someone in your family accused and you about took the gloves off? I guess some mama bears in the room who are like, "Uh uh-huh. His teacher, you know, right? His coach. There's something about that close relationship, isn't there? When somebody attacks someone you love, that you, do you know there's actually something um, inherently godlike in that response? Because there is no more perfect relationship in the entire universe than the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We read a little bit about that in John 17, didn't we? If you read through the life of Jesus, you see that everything he did was filled with the power of the Spirit. And it is impossible to exaggerate how perfect and loving and close that relationship is. And when these men said, you know where your power comes from? It's because you have an evil spirit. Jesus stopped them. Because God has no part with evil. He is holy. He's separate from sin. He's the only good one in the entire universe. Remember how Jesus said that about? There is none really good but God. He has never tempted anyone, James tells us. He is fully just and will judge all sin one day. I was talking about this a little bit with my wife this week, and I said, you know, sometimes we struggle with God and the problem of evil because because God doesn't prevent or stop evil like we think he should. And my wife, in wisdom, said, well, not yet. You know, it's true. God is patient. He is merciful. He's full of grace. But he will by no means clear the guilty. He is holy. He is righteous. And to even insinuate that God is evil in some way, and I don't care how deep and theological and smart we think we are, but God is not evil. Not in any way. And if your own theological conclusions take you to a place where you have to like, God has to have some sort of culpability, responsibility for evil, then they've taken you to a bad and wrong place. Because Jesus did not have an unclean spirit in any way. Everything he did was good and holy 
and just. And by the way, can I warn us on the other side? Um, Let's be careful when we insinuate that God is in some way crazy. You ever done this? Well, no, I don't know what's going on in my life. God's just got a crazy sense of humor. Careful. Careful. God's not doing anything crazy in your life. Have you ever connected all the dots to the things God has done to this point in your life and how they all fit together in like unbelievable ways? That's God. He plans. He works out his plans. His plans are never thwarted. He is wise. But look at how Jesus responds. It's interesting that he doesn't actually respond to his family's accusation right away. He waits until the end of the story. Look at verse 31. And Jesus' mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they called him. So they've been trying to like get him back in the house. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So on the one hand, Jesus um, strongly refutes the first accusation. But can I make an argument here that Jesus responds with some grace in this other one? Now, I'm sure that what Jesus said was not easy for his family to digest. And I don't think it's a statement at all that Jesus didn't love his family or care deeply about them. But Jesus actually redirects to the crowd. He, he doesn't call his family onto the carpet like he called the religious leaders out. He actually turns the conversation. He redirects. He diffuses. And he points the crowd to, back to the truth in a gracious way. That Jesus' followers aren't the people who call him crazy. They trust him. And they do the Father's will. They follow him. Yes, his understanding is beyond ours. Yes, we can't search it out. Yes, we don't know why God does things in the time that he does them. But we just trust him. We just follow him. You know, I'm not even convinced that we're going to get all the answers in eternity. I know some people are convinced of that. But whether or not we get the answers about deep loss, about unexpected challenges, about our children, about our church, Jesus' followers, they just trust him. Now, like Kevin said in the singing, I wish that was as easy to live as it is to say. Because just like I said at the beginning, I'm, I was very overwhelmed this week. I also can admit freely, I struggle to trust God. It does pop into my mind that this is crazy. That, that I can't put all these pieces together. But Jesus says, my family, they're just with me. They just do what the Father says. And I wonder today, are you part of God's family? John 1 verse 12 says it this way, but all to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Have you received Jesus? Have you you started this life of trusting him? Many of us are in the middle of this life of trusting him. But I wonder if you've ever started. Have you ever just said, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I need Jesus. I'm going to trust that when he died on the cross, he paid for my sin. And when he rose again, he defeated death in the grave. And I'm just going to trust him. I'm not going to try to work it out on my own. What do we sing today? Not of merit. I'm just going to follow him. Can, can I just reassure all of you today, Jesus is worth trusting. He is all wise. He is all good. He always does what is best and right. It cannot be improved upon. How should we respond to what we've read? Well, I hope that as you walk away from this, you wonder at Jesus, how he handles severe pressure with wisdom and humility and grace and truth. I wonder about your own life. Where are you under pressure? And how are you responding? Are you cracking? Are you crumbling? Do you need to get help? I I almost even hesitate to ask that in that way. Can I just clarify that? The question is really not, do you need to get help? The question is actually, where do you need to get help? Because there's not a single person in this room that God has equipped and given all the strength and ability to do everything. I mean, to be honest, there may be some of you who have an area of your life where you're doing something that you probably should let go. But, it, but if you assess, God, these are all things that you've called me to. These are things that I know you want me to do, but there is, there is not enough strength in me to do them. By the way, that's where God loves to put us. Because then we need his grace and his strength, and we need each other. And can I just encourage you to stop making excuses about why you don't get help? If you want to boil it down, it's just pride. Where have you been accused, and how do you need to respond? Parents, man, we need wisdom here, isn't it? Don't we? Is, is it a time for a soft answer turns away wrath? Or is it a time for some strong truth? And that, that requires wisdom. Are we even subtly thinking or saying that God is crazy or in some way that he is evil? And then how can we share this truth with others? And like I said, maybe you've never begun a relationship of trusting Jesus. We'd love to talk to you about that. Let's pray together. God, even as Daniel read, I just pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We praise you because you are the all-wise God and because you are good and pure and blameless and holy. And we marvel at your humility God, you tell us you draw nigh, you draw close to the humble, but you resist the proud. Would you cause us to live in the ways of Jesus, in true humility, and to forsake our pride? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.